This is Waffle On Podcast. And if that music doesn't give away this week's subject matter, then where the hell have you been for the past 46 years? Well, my name is Simon Meddings, and with me is Mr Peter Coleman. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks are for you? having me along. No, you look smart in your tuxedo. As do you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and what better way to start off a, a, a subject matter of James Bond than to play the theme tune here, the iconic theme tune, wrote by Monty Norman. Monty Norman, you're quite right. Yeah, but most people think it's done by John Barry. Now, why do you think that? Because every time you see it, it's always done by the John Barry Orchestra. Uh, and so the creator of uh, James Bond is Ian Fleming. Pete? Well, the interesting thing about Ian Fleming... Is his middle name. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ian Lancaster Fleming. Excellent. Um, why would you name your baby after a bomber? <laughs> I've, I've no idea. Maybe he came out with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not with a whimper. Hey? No. <laughs> Born on the 28th of May in 1908. God bless him. In London. <laughs> in London. In Mayfair, no less. Oh. I mean, how how bond is that? <laughs> and you've got some uh, uh, little in bits and facts about the good uh, Sir Ian Fleming. I have. Well, I've always had a bit of a fascination with um, Bletchley Park, which is the World War Two decoding station in the somewhere in the middle of England, mm -hmm. somewhere. One of Fleming's uh, wartime uh, schemes was uh, he, he had a, uh, a plan which he codenamed um, Operation Ruthless, mm. which was a way of getting hold of one of the German Enigma machines, uh, the idea being to use a captured German aeroplane, mm. crash it into the English Channel, the British crew would be dressed in Luftwaffe uniforms, they would be rescued, and then they'd kill the German crew and hijack the ship. Right. And thus obtain the Enigma machine. It sounds like a comedy sketch, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does seem, sound like a harebrained mm. scheme. I mean, yeah, the, the 
the truth of this is is rather shrouded in the mists of time and in the mists of uh, Whitehall secrecy. Yeah, Ian Fleming did a lot in World War Two. Um, probably drank a lot in World War Two as well. The um, British way to be. <laughs> but I like the way that he comes up with the op- these operation. Yeah, if, there's always somebody in the company that comes up with a code name for something, isn't yeah. there? Mm-hmm. And he, so he's come up with Operation Ruthless. I like it, which is up there with kind of Project Zeus, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but one of his later ones, planned to maintain communication with Gibraltar, was called Operation Goldeneye. Ah, now I, I um, read something that he had an idea of. Um, was he trying to get hold of Hess? In some strange way, and but of course Hess uh, already snuck over to Scotland to try and do some <laughs> peace missions. Uh, and he's on the board. Uh, yeah, um, Ian Fleming was actually um, brought in by uh, Rear Admiral John Godfrey as his personal assistant, and he had the code name Seventeen F. I've got to be honest with you. If I could pick a code name, Seventeen <laughs> F would not be. It sounds like a really bad bra size. It's, <laughs> it's an appalling bra size, actually. <laughs> It's a brown size for a calf. <laughs> it's also a seat on a plane. Yeah, yeah maybe that's where they're going for. Maybe that's really bored one day. So that's, that's where they met. <laughs> so yeah, um, that was our old Ian Fleming. I mean, we could go. We could just actually have a whole podcast dedicated to Ian Fleming. But um, we're not. We are here to talk about the James Bond films. He died on the twelfth of August in nineteen sixty four. So really, only got to see um, Connery perform really Doctor No more than anything mm. he died of a heart attack he was a, a long time drinker and smoker and uh, the only other thing that I, I think is pretty interesting to um, to everyone about Ian Fleming he's, uh, he's the cousin to Christopher Lee mm. uh, and also he wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is you know, a strange body of work I think I mean mm. you know, the, the only body I know with a Similarly diverse body of uh, body of work is probably Gary Glitter, but uh, yeah, well, let's not let's go, not, there. Let's not go I, there. I was just looking at my notes under Ian Fleming, and I wrote bibliophile. And originally, because <laughs> he was a flashed big, up on the screen, yeah, didn't yeah. it? But he was a big. He obviously collected lots and lots of books, and uh, the reason why I didn't say that because I thought he said biblephile. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into um, the actual James Bond films. Okay, do you know who played Bond first? One of those old trivia facts I've loved remembering, I think it was the uh, the well-loved game show presenter Bob Holmes. Yes, it was, but he played him second. Ooh. Mm. Barry Nelson played Bond first, under the name of Jimmy Bond, in a uh, TV American special of Casino Royale. Bob Holness did the radio version oh. for Moonraker. So there we go. Oh. So we start off the James Bond films with good old Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Now, how old was Sean Connery when he got the gig? Um, 32. He was actually 30. And bald. Well, there we go. <laughs> hope there for all of us, really. And, you know, I am actually I'm fascinated in his hair pieces throughout Bond. Um, because one, when he was in Hell Drivers, which was um, 56, I think, he's got a good set of hair now. Now, he was only a small role in Hell Drivers, and I find it hard to believe they would have put a wig on him do you know what I mean? Because it's like he's such a small role. You'd think, well, just just get an actor with hair. Yes, but you know, the uh, yes, it, it's it's funny because especially when you go towards the later films, mm. as, as technology progresses, as you know, the gadgets become ever increasingly uh, sophisticated, as <laughs> technology comes along. Wig technology hits reverse, <laughs> and well, he plays Never Say Never Again yeah. with a haystack on his head. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think when you look at Doctor No, actually, and there's, there's obviously there's some Wonder Water scenes. It's pretty. I think it's a pretty good two pack because he's only going bald. He had the sides of his like now really he's got his still hair on the sides of his noggin, um, but on the top, I think it was just the front bit. They were starting to lose it, and so he had to have obviously some extra stuff put on. <laughs> I mean, you think of bad wigs now. I mean, Tony Curtis, thank. <laughs> you know, thank goodness he's got rid of that um, cat on top of his head. He, that's why I think he was blowfart later on. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, before we go into Doctor No, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the classic, the iconic gun barrel sequence. Uh, oh, yes. Done by um, Marvis Binder, and that's obviously was accompanied to the James Bond theme by uh, Monty Norman. Now, you see Sean Connery walk on Doctor No beginning the gun barrel sequence. No. Yep, no. It's no? not Sean Connery. Oh, for heaven's sake, will, will the man do nothing for money? <laughs> it's stuntman Bob Simmons who plays Bond in the very first gun barrel shot. That's, that's not even dangerous, life. unless it's a real gun barrel. I think it was just, as you say, just maybe pure laziness, you know, and, and maybe he just didn't uh, didn't want to do it. Didn't he have a hat on as well? He did, he had a hat on, and uh, Connery does wear a hat in the, the follow-up to those, but the very first one is actually... Bob Simmons and the um, same design was kept all the way up until Goldeneye in which they started to use then um, CGI effects ok yeah yeah, yeah. so, so uh, let's go on to uh, Doctor No then ah yes Doctor No or Doctor No Hair as we, we've, we've <laughs> already established with uh, Sir Sean Connery 1962 directed by Terence Young facts about Doctor No Mr Coleman yeah. um, as you say uh, 1962 the very first Bond film it, pretty low budget they they didn't really know how it was going to fare and as it turned out it ends up inspiring this entire genre of 60s spy films and TV series and spin-offs which went on from there as I said Sean Connery was 30 years old he there was a competition that was held um, open to the public to, mm. to find James Bond because obviously the books were well established mm. at that point uh, a chap who won it was a 28-year-old model called Peter Anthony, yeah. um, who he, uh, according to Broccoli, he said, looks a bit like Gregory Peck. Mm. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, he was unable to cope with the, the, pressure the size and the stature yeah. of the role. The, uh, looking through my notes here, I see that the, the original book features a scene where um, Honey Rider, who played by the uh, gorgeous Ursula Andress, mm. un- undress as, as uh, <laughs> Freud would have it, um, is tortured by being tied to the ground along with crabs. Mm. And they say Bond didn't have any kind of disease. <laughs> <Yeah. that time. laughs> Interesting thing enough, before Sean Connery came along and, and uh, that bloke who couldn't handle the pressure, um, Patrick McGowan was offered the role of. Uh, Bond, uh, at that point most well known for his portrayal of John Drake in Danger Man. Uh, he turned the role down because he didn't like the way Bond was you know, basically just a sex-craved man. Uh, McGurin is, is um, extremely well known for being incredibly loyal to his wife to the point of actually very, very rarely kissing any woman on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger Moore was also tipped to play um, Bond, but at that point was um, yeah, contracted to Lou Grade. So Sean Connery came in. And again, this is another thing uh, which seems to be a bit of a, a theme throughout Bond. We've actors nearly getting it and then getting it later on. One final thing before we move on from, mm-hmm. from Doctor No. In Japan, the film was titled We Have No Need of a Doctor. <laughs> when promotional materials sent to Japan by, you know, by United Artists mistakenly fe- featured a question mark. <laughs> so I read, Doctor No? <laughs> what's, your, what's your feelings about uh, Doctor No? Uh, if you view it in 
in in the circumstances of being the, the first film, the start of the of the genre, you know, r- really really terrific way of, of beginning. It lacked a, a number of the the features which have become commonplace mm. in Bond films. Hands. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Of course. Curse these metal hands. Curse these metal. I'm not being fair. He shows off by crushing that gold brother. But at the end of the day, I can think of a few things. One thing in particular that he's got something that the bun can go. You can't use your hands for certain things, can you, my friend? <laughs> you need hands. Yeah. I think is it? He'd be really bad at jazz hands. It would. <laughs> well, they could probably knock out a decent tune with it. <laughs> Mm, yeah, do you think he's got a good pitch on it? Ding. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the outtakes, apparently, or, or actually one of the intakes. The, uh, the, 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 I think it's a little bust he picks up. Not, not a woman's bust, of course. <laughs> um, it picks it up to crush it. Uh, but apparently in the, in the shot before, you can see that it's made of rubber. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, so we go from Dr. No on to From Russia with Love. Mm. The first time that uh, you get in a Bond theme. So, from Russia We Love, 1963, again, uh, directed by Terence Young. Yes, and uh, Matt Monroe there, crooning from Russia With Love. Oh, yeah, because he's making out with that. He's that the first Bond girl by the picnic, isn't he? And he's got his Bentley there, and you can hear Matt Monroe as the, the oh, old bogus bust. in, yes, oh, right. yes. But yeah, the, the Bentley being the original Fleming Bond car of choice. Mm. From Russia with Love also features one of the funniest fight sequences in it in the Bond films, um, with Rosa Klebb, of course, with her her poisoned toe of her boot, um, just going <laughs> goose stepping around the room trying to kick Bond with it. It's like just shoot the man, yeah. just get someone who isn't blind and shoot him. And and then he cunningly disarms her by pinning her against the wall with a chair. To be fair, I mean that's probably the only thing you might do with her because uh, or she's I'm, I'm sure she's a lovely woman, but oh, she is ugly. You would pin her against the wall with You'd, a chair yeah. just to get her out of the way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, any other things about that? Uh, oh, uh, trivia file. Yes. Oh, uh, gone. From Russia with Love was the last film that President Kennedy saw at the White House on the 20th of November 1963. Doesn't say what he went on to do after that. No, (laughs) I certainly wasn't going to see Doctor Who, was it? The following film after that, The Old Connie, was uh, probably one of his most um, famous ones, the most iconic ones, is Goldfinger, uh, 1964, uh, this time directed by Guy Hamilton. Can you say... Goldfinger without slightly <laughs> singing it. Goldfinger! <laughs> or thinking of Matt Lucas doing it. You know, <laughs> what a fantastic film. What a really good looking film. And mm. again, this is. Don't forget, this is you know, rapid fire films. You've got mm. Doctor No 62 from Russia with Love 63, Goldfinger 64. Here mm. we go, guys. We've got something big going on here. And so Goldfinger comes along and it's got all the ingredients, hasn't it? It, it is. It's a, it's a package of pure beauty everything about it is what you want from a Bond film I think this is the template yeah there's a perfect villain um, perfect gadgets mm-hmm. feisty Bond girl and the best car in the world ah yes the DB5 mm-hmm. um, with all these wonderful gadgets and um, Ken Adam the again, let us bow to him let us bow, bow to Ken Adam because he, he he chose the Aston Martin because it was quite simply the latest British sports car, mm. so it was right up to the minute. Um, he came with the idea of the revolving licence plate because he <laughs> he said to himself he'd been getting too many parking tickets. <laughs> and he thought that'd be a handy ruse to get out of it. I mean, it's not it's not the greatest 
weapon that uh, these these terrorists have against Bond is an ah we'll catch him speeding <laughs> not only the best one of the best villains let's mm. say to, to avoid an argument yeah. but but one of the best henchmen odd job random task odd job ah oh, but although again the only thing that I think lets him down is his weapon of choice you've got one as we were just talking about a shoe with a pointy blade and now you've got a bowler hat with a big razor blade around the edge. Yeah, I think this is this is the point at which um, that they've decided that well, by this point, blind marksman shooting at the guy with bullets mm. isn't going to cut it. No. Let's just concentrate on attacking him with items of clothing. <laughs> now, isn't there, there's a bit of a continuity fault? Well, not maybe not even the continuity fault, but should, doesn't our job show how good his hat is by throwing it at a statue and it chops his head off? I remember that's at the golf course, isn't right. it? But then when he chases that woman, he takes his hat off and he just casually goes bunk on the side of red. Admittedly, it does kill her, but if it took off a statue's head, surely it would take her head off. Yeah, I think nowadays I can see why they wouldn't be, do it. That would be easier to film now, wouldn't yeah. it? Um, it? Is set rather more like something you'd find in The Omen than than one of the Bond films. And you have an interesting fact about our job. I or do. The, the person who played him, I should say. Yes, yes, Harold Sakata, uh, being the name of the chap. Um, who was an Olympic silver medalist weightlifter, oh. um, which I understand to have been in the 1948 Olympics in London. Mm. Yeah, because he wouldn't have been a pole vaulter or anything like that. No, no, that, that, that would have been really bad. I think he put in an electrifying performance in this film. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> it was his downfall, wasn't it? Ultimately, his hat <laughs> was his downfall. It was and his downfall. That's why he was so little, really, because of the sheer weight of the hat. <laughs> and, of course, who played Goldfinger? Uh, Gert Frobe. And you know what else he was in? I do, because I told you. Yeah. Um, it was <laughs> Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It was, and he was in Monte Carlo Bust. Which of course starred uh, Peter Cook, who yes. works with David Frost. I don't know why I feel the need to mention that. That's uh, six degrees of David Frost again. <laughs> you can't move in the sixties for David Frost. Anything else on Goldfinger? Well, this was one of the very first films to feature film and movie tie-ins. Mm. So clothing, shoes, action figures, board games, jigsaw puzzles, lunchboxes, toys, record albums, trading cars, uh, slot cars. I mean, I, I I wonder I wonder who buys all this stuff. I really do. <laughs> it's a good connection. Do not stare at my cars. I think, I think everybody, every kid had a small Corgi or small little Aston Martin DB5 with the little ejector seat that popped out. I'm sure every single kid has had one. Guilty and as subsequently lost the seat. Yep, <laughs> lost lost the baddie which shot somewhere and was eaten by the cat. <laughs> right, and we then go on to Thunderball, the highest grossing film of all Bond films, even up to now. Uh, in, with inflation adjusted, um, Thunderball made $966 million. It is also the Bond film that has caused the most trouble. Um, that's true, because of various rights issues over mm. screenplays, original novels, and so forth. You said it's highest grossing, it also has the highest end note of any Bond film. Yes, the, our uh, Welsh, uh, Welsh king of the vocals, Tom Jones, um, oh, sung yes. that song and passed out at the end of it. Yes. Um, there yeah, again, he... have you seen how tight those trousers were that he wore? 
Yes, back in yes. 1965. Well, I mean, he didn't leave an awful lot to the imagination. I think that's exactly why people were throwing underwear at him. So <laughs> cover that up. Will you not cover that up, Please, Tom Jones? Because he certainly was a daffodil there now, wasn't he? Oh. <laughs> it was a leak. <laughs> Directed by uh, Terence Young, uh, this one. 62, 63, 64, and the Thunderbolt, 65. Mm. Again, they're blasting these things out. And this is the point as well where I think Sean Connery is starting to get um, a little bit bored of the role. Mm. It's not a great film, I don't think. Um, it, it's not one of the great ones, which is ironic because it's the one that's been remade so many times. If you're going to remake mm. them, then you know, pick one of the really tip-top ones. Yeah. But uh, I think Connery's uh, tiredness for the role seems to have probably crept in when uh, when they had the shark incident. Uh, Ken Adam, of course, designs things that look terrifically good on the screen, but are actually made of just butter by the, when you go and touch them, because Connery insisted that there was a plexiglass tank in this shark pool, and it came apart a bit, and a shark went <laughs> after Connery, and I think I think just managed to ease his wig. Hold on a minute. It came apart a bit for a shark to get through it and chase him. Uh, okay, so it, well, it wasn't chased by a stickleback. The entire shark got through it. But yes, there, there was another point where where they decided we're not going to work with live sharks anymore. <laughs> we're going to stick a dead shark in there and tow it about the place. Um, and when they dropped it in the pool, they found out it wasn't actually dead and went after a stuntman. I've got it. They abandoned you, the sharking. You, 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 the researcher or the production assistant on that film, I don't think would have got another job. If his only role for that job was to go out, get a dead shark, and actually comes back one, which is, I mean, isn't actually dead. I mean, where did you find it in the first place? Like you say, I mean, <laughs> something's broken, that's a bit of an absolute. It's either broken or it isn't. Shark, either dead or not. We've got another fact about sharks, though. This is not a shark podcast, but go on. <laughs> Sorry. Link to a certain Mr. Spielberg. Mm. Who who also used sharks in films? I believe so. Um, although on the occasion of Jaws, a rather well more convincing than a dead one, a mechanical one. Yeah, well, it's yeah, it looked pretty convincing to me. Mm. But Spielberg was later approached to direct uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. Ah, right. Um, at the point at which he just uh, he was in post production on Jaws, mm. and the quote which they uh, which they got from Spielberg was he wanted to see how the fish movie turned out. Well, fair play to him. I mean, considering that it probably was the only film that he'd done before then was Jewel, really. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose another thing, a little uh, back to Spielberg, of course, is that I had um, old Robert Shaw in it, and he was in uh, Goldfinger as well. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, so then we uh, hurry quickly on to uh, You Only Leave Twice. 1967, and Lewis Gilbert directed one of my favourite Bond films because of one scene, but I'll tell you that afterwards. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's got to also be one of your favourite Bond films because of who wrote it. Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl. They're literally genius. OK, you only live twice. Um, as we've said, 1967 starts with uh, Sean Connery faking his murder, which allows Bond more freedom to operate. Yeah, because this was the thing because he wanted to leave. Originally that was wrote uh, for Connery's actual exit to a certain degree. <laughs> um, and the whole, the whole question that everyone wanted to know was... You know, is 007 one person, or is 007 the same person but portrayed by different actors? Mm. Everyone just thought, you know, 007, you just take on the whole 007, and that's where that started to come from. Yes, because if if, if the other 00s get popped off, they get replaced, mm. don't they? So, yeah, I can see how that works. Tell me about your favourite scene in this film. It's the rooftop fight 
It's oh. just awesome. Connery's, well, Bondy's, you know, trying to escape from all the bad guys. The camera is on the helicopter and zooms out. And Bond's running on top of himself. And suddenly, out of all of the corners of his roof, come loads and loads of bad guys. And he's just beating the crap out of them. Proper, proper Connery. That's what's good about Connery. I mean, Connery smacks somebody in the face. You think, ooh. You know, you get that essence that you think Connery would do that. You know you're in trouble. Yeah. I think he had this... He had this stance that I think, and and you can you can see it really working in the Bond films, where if you just watch him walk, mm. and I'm just going to get turn a little bit America's Next Top Model with this. You need to watch the walk. <laughs> um, the walk. The walk. Isn't that a cooking instrument used by the Chinese? <laughs> you walk this way. <laughs> one of our favourite restaurants. You need to watch the way that Sean Connery walks. Um, <laughs> and watch how his shoulders roll. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like um, it's like a big cat mm. stalking almost. And so mm. you can believe that this guy can can do a good job yeah, of um, yeah. of beating off the baddies. Mm. I think it's that Scott in him as well. Whatever so it takes to calm down. I think Edward Wood is a bit like that as well in um, Cullen, and also the Equalizer a bit later on when you see him walking. He's only a small bloke, but you think, mm, blimey, you wouldn't mess with him. That's true, and it's something that. As, as we'll come to Roger in a bit, it's something you'd believe a little bit less of in mm. Roger. Trivia! Go on, em. Trivia! On you don't live twice. Lots of Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Fleming wrote a lot of, of, of Japanese culture into the actual novel. The entire production team, Lewis Gilbert, uh, could be Rockley, Harry Saltzman, Ken Adam, and Freddie Young, the director of photography, were in Japan looking around and spending time looking for locations. They found out that the Japanese don't build castles by the sea, so they uh, they changed the fortress to an extinct volcano. Right, as you do. Which is brilliant in itself. They were due back on um, Flight 707 on the 5th of March, 1966. But at the last minute, somebody said, oh, you've got to come and watch this ninja demonstration. Mm. Uh, they cancelled the flight and went on a later one. Their original flight crashed 25 minutes after takeoff, killing everybody on board. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> are we going to do the trivia fact about broccoli? Yes. Go on, then. Well, he gets his name from the vegetable. No! (laughs) It's the other way around. What, the vegetable got his name from him? Yep. Yeah, I knew it was one of the ways. Yes. Because you wouldn't have that name for any other reason, would you? Exactly. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, Fred Cabbage. It doesn't have the same ring to it. (laughs) No. So we've got one more uh, Sean Connery film, although, of course, there is a Bond film before that, but we're doing a mean act in order. So um, he's Diamonds Are Forever, uh, the film in which suddenly uh, Connery looks incredibly ancient. He, he has, something has happened. Mm. Something has happened to this man, and oh, what on earth has happened to his face? <laughs> it's kind of like a Nicky Lauder moment. Hang on, who's that? <laughs> they may as well have put an, an, another actor in at this point. <laughs> and especially, you know, we have this predilection for calling each other and Mr. Meddings and Mr. Mm-hmm. Dolman occasionally. I can't help thinking it's in homage to Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Indeed. And the interesting fact about Mr. Wint is that was played by Bruce Glover father of Crispin Glover, who was in the Back to the Future films as McFly and later Charlie's Angel. Anyway, the theme song. Yes, Diamonds Are Forever. Shirley Bassey um, doing one of her three, I think, Mm. Bond songs. John Barry told Shirley to (laughs) sing about the diamond in the song as though she was singing about a man's member. Oh, really? Let's leave it there. <laughs> With that image, I'm off for a drink. Yes, it's a good job Tom Jones didn't think about that when he was doing Thunderball. He would have certainly had passed out even more. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Colin's role, and then we're going to go on to George Lazenby. Mm-hmm. 
Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. The one thing I think that stands out with on Her Majesty's Secret Service is whoever advised George Lazenby really should never have had a job. It's like, George, really, I know you've been offered a seven-film contract on the strength of this, mm. but really, this genre is dead. It's not going anywhere. It's under the same lines as the record producer returned the Beatles down by saying, guitar bands, they're so out. <laughs> you know I mean? It's just ridiculous. Yeah, George Lazenby takes the mantle of uh, James Bond in this. It's a 1969 film. A really big old takeover from Connery. Considering that he'd only done a couple of small things in Australia in his native homeland. A couple of adverts, Yeah, that's about it. And he, he really did jump into it. And, you know, I think he, he does the job really well. I mean, he starts off... Um, with a great fight and he doesn't get the girl and he says the iconic line this never happened to the other guy which is a bit of a nod to um, past bonds there's a few other nods to uh, past bonds in this film isn't there there are one or two yes um, obviously with the change in act of the studios were keen to make sure that it was it was linked to the old ones um, so the credit sequence has images from the previous film was in mm. Bond visits his office and finds objects lying about um, that are featured in Doctor No from Brush With Love <laughs> and so forth. I believe still in the sequence in Bond's office, there's a janitor there who's whistling the theme from Goldfinger. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes... I mean, I can see why they did that, but it's also... It's not giving him the best of chances to start off with if you've got images of past Bond films in it. No, no. I mean, as you say, either, either it's always the same guy mm. or it's a different person being the same 007. Yeah. Um, Diana Rigg is in this film uh, who actually ends up being Mrs Bond mm. um, obviously she doesn't last long as Mrs Bond <laughs> sadly not No, killed by Blofeld that's right inconsistency uh, with Blofeld inconsistency with Blofeld yeah the script does stay quite close to the original book but the problem is that the films happen in a different order mm. so that Blofeld doesn't actually recognise Bond even though they met in the first, in the film just before. <laughs> so it's like, now, I had something good going on earlier. Now, who was that chap that really mucked it up for? Hang on, surely that's him. Surely you'd <laughs> recognise the guy. <laughs> so sure. I suppose you could turn around and say that this could be the prequel to You Only Live Twice. Mm. Um, there's an argument for that. Yeah, you could, you could rearrange it. You could do a Pulp Fiction and rearrange the mm. sequences a little bit. Um but uh, but yeah, it, it does get a little bit confusing. But that helps because it's a different mm. actor. So you just there's an original bit in the in the first script for this where Bond undergoes plastic surgery to disguise him from his enemies, which yeah. is getting really really hokey by that. Well, point. he takes on another persona as well in this film, and um, he's actually dubbed in this George Lazenby is at that point by uh, English actor George Baker. Well, known at that point for actually being in Bond, um, but he was played uh, number two in The Prisoner, but later was Inspector Wexford on uh, the ITV. Oh, right. In fact, George Baker dubbed quite a few roles in the Bond films. He had an incredibly good voice and uh, was able to do you know, pompous English very well. Oh, as a, I suppose a, a, an Australian had only done fish finger adverts, really didn't have a clue. <laughs> Fair <laughs> point. Mind you, he's not the person with the, with the best voice in the film, is he? No, no. Who is it? Louis Armstrong. Classic and white. Well, he his his last ever recorded song. Mm. Um, he he died of a heart attack two years. Uh, later, um, he 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 wasn't uh, he wasn't very well when he recorded the song. Mm. Uh, John Barry said he was uh, he was really not in a good way. Um, but he actually recorded the song in a single take. Amazing, and it's a beautiful song. 
It really is. Um, and that's the way that the film ends and, and drifts off. And um, it, it kind of compartmentalises the Lazenby film um, as, as this kind of little brief... Mm brief shot of, of, of life of what Bond might have been if it had gone a different way because and the other way it could have gone if it yeah. hadn't gone to Lazenby and then they'd decided to get Connery back is the film was originally offered to Timothy Dalton. Yeah and he would have been extremely young at that point as well Very I mean, it would have been what maybe just 23 or something? I think it was 23 24 yeah. and he, I think he turned it down because he thought it, it, he was was just far he, too He young. had a, a, um, a commitment as well to the um, Royal Shakespeare Company at that point as well, <laughs> uh, which is which is a bit weird. Which there again, he's classically trained actor. I think it's I think on the Majesty's Secret Service, he's one of the best James Bond films. Hmm. And all respect to George Lansbury, he did a pretty good job in it. I liked him, but I think if Connery had done that role, it would have been it would be the ultimate James Bond film because hmm. it doesn't end on a good note, and that's what's nice about it. I think to a certain degree, unlike other Bond films where he does get the girl, he has got the girl. He's finally got the woman he loves, and she gets shot in the head. Hmm. And it's it is it's it's really heartbreaking. I think at the end of that oh certainly I mean yeah, the, the, the Fleming novels are, are, are more brutalist mm. um, and visceral and real and people genuinely get hurt and uh, as, as we go on through through Connery through Lazenby through Roger mm. coming up <laughs> obviously that that realism um, fades away for a bit and doesn't come back until um, only a couple of years ago really. yeah yeah this never happened to the other fella. Right then, now we're on to Live and Let Die as you eat that cake rather quickly. <laughs> and, uh, of course, this features Roger Moore, who Rogers Moore. <laughs> he certainly does. He does. Uh, Live and Let Die, 1973, the year of my birth. A brilliant film. Not only uh, does it have the most wickedest theme tune in it done by Paul McCartney and Wings. Yeah. Oh, come on. I'm going to make that noise again. Oh, you're strange. You should love it, considering where you come from. What? Sorry. <laughs> we all. Yes. I know. I should have this natural love tendency it, towards Paul McCartney. It's 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 not a bad song. I think I think there's there's a confusing bit in it. In this ever changing world in which we live in, how many ins do you need? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so um, <laughs> live and let die. Yes. Um, yes, uh, well, you know, 1973, the year of Simon Meddings and the year of black exploitation, yeah, hand in hand, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> love the love the fact in this that you know it's it's set on um, a small Caribbean island called San Monique, and when they went out to uh, survey for locations, they found a crocodile farm mm-hmm. owned by a chap called Ross Kananga, with the sign that appears in the film that says trespassers will, will be eaten. Now, Ross, Ross Kananga, he actually doubled for Roger Moore when they do the jumping over the crocodiles. There's a bit anyway, it's a close-up of Roger Moore when he runs over the rubber crocodiles. <laughs> and then they hand over to, um, to the owner to actually do the bits where he jumps on top of the crocodiles and they snap. That's right. He's actually wearing Roger Moore's crocodile shoes. I mean, of all the things to wear when you're going to do this thing. And, of course, he does get, they get eaten, you know, because he slips up and... Um, and Moore was quite upset because he lost his, his prized crocodile shoes. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if you're going to a crocodile... Mind you, I, 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 I go to beef farms. In, no, I don't go to beef farms at all. I don't have <laughs> shoes. I don't, I don't constantly tour beef, beef farms. farms. <laughs> Going around licking the cows. I know how much we like these rare steaks, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a. Would, wouldn't be it wouldn't a bad be the thing. thing to do. Oh, right, if we had it wouldn't beef be an unusual farms. thing to tour a beef farm <laughs> wearing leather shoes. Yeah. How many um, you had? Or, or a or a salmon fishery with your 
Yeah, trout skin shoes. I don't know. Should we go back under that the black exploitation thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one the one thing that I I always remember about this film is the fact that Roger Moore <laughs> stands out like a sore thumb in uh, it's New Orleans, isn't it? Like that. And um, oh yeah, where <laughs> the you first time he walks into a bar. Oh, is it Harlem? Um, we'll get back to you on that. Yeah, um, regardless then, but he walks into a club, it's a brilliant scene, he's the only white man there, standing out like in his big cashmere jacket, sits down. Not only does the first time he sits down, his chair goes through the wall, but he goes back to the club, sits back down again, and then goes down in the floor. Oh, good lord, yes, it's like, I mean, we've all been in dodgy bars, mm. it's like, really, if any of us walked into that bar, it's, it's not the most welcoming bar in the world, and it's... Oh, really? Yeah, it... <laughs> and then he says, "Can I have a drink?" Yes, I'd like some information as well, please. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> That's the least subtle spy in the world. You know, that, yeah, the the white guy that came in. Which one? The only one. Yeah. <laughs> what does he want? Information. Oh, and a vodka martini in a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, have a planter's punch or something. Blend in, for heaven's sake. <laughs> All the tourists out of the vodka martinis. No, the the thing about this film as well is that the um, I think the the bad guys in it are just so iconic. You've got the vo- the guy who's all the voodoo who 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 supposedly dies in the the basket of snakes, but he's seen at the end on the train laughing. I mean that laugh is just incredible. Oh, that's a good laugh, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And again, another bloke without a hand, and it's so obviously that he's got <laughs> got a really cheap claw up his sleeve. That, that Although I, I did actually, I, I must confess, it was only the other day that I Wikipedia to find out if that guy did actually only have one hand, just in case I, I made a, a mistake of that. And, yeah, uh, in case you were just criticising a man's metal hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now on to uh, the man with the golden. Go- oh, have you anything else to say about him to die? Oh, well, I quickly speed on. I'll, I'll mention Desmond Llewellyn. Oh, please do because yes, this is lovely. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn was uh, appearing in a TV series called Follyfoot, <laughs> which, as far as I can remember from uh, children's TV uh, holiday viewing, was a children's drama about some horses. And uh, Desmond Llewellyn persuaded the producers of Follyfoot to write him out of three episodes so that he could appear in Live and Let Die. But not being black, uh, <laughs> they didn't allow him to appear. And uh, so he'd written himself out of Follyfoot for no good reason at all. Oh, he dear. might have been in it blacked up. He could have been. <laughs> Black and white means I'm gonna, right, now that we've got HD copies of these, we'll go back and have another look. He, he'll be there. <laughs> he'll be there in the background. I bet that's him Or he could be a crocodile. Could be. Could be, <laughs> could could be, be the farm. crocodile. <laughs> could be the crocodile from Octopussy. Oh, <laughs> jumping about here. Okay, get on to Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee, the man with the golden gun and the nipple and the nipple and the <laughs> worst theme tune ever. Who have we got to blame for that? Lulu and Don Black. Mm-hmm. Rubbish. Even and worse than Never Let Die. Do you know who they turned down for that uh, for the title? Thing well, they. Uh, I, I don't know. A foghorn would have been Alice better. Cooper. Apparently did an awesome um, theme tune for Man with the Golden Gun. Did she? Did she? And, uh, and they turned... Did she? And uh, they turned him down for Lulu with such lyrics as... He'll shoot anyone with his gun. Mm. So why is he going to shoot him with it? When love is required, whenever he's hired. <laughs> <laughs> so if he only gets one job a year... <laughs> Man, what, what, what is iconic? Well, as long as it's not from the guy with the metal hand. Back <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to Doctor, no. Now, the man with the golden gun has uh, two 
interesting things that stick out. Uh, <laughs> one, he's obviously the golden gun, made from uh, his pen and a lighter. Made from somebody's dodgy old lighter. The other is Knickknack. Well, he doesn't exactly stick out, does he? Um, <laughs> unless he's just on his own on a beach. Um, he, 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 he's tiny. Mm-hmm. Is, is it Herve or Herve, Herve from... I think it's um, Herve, Herve, yeah, from Fantasy Island, isn't he? He's, he's most well known for. Somebody said it's, it's like James Bond and Herve and Dracula are all in the same film. <laughs> what can what can go wrong? The actor who played Nick Knack uh, had a... Uh, uh, <laughs> we know was filming it, um, like the ladies. And uh, was it Maud Adams who was the, um, the Bond girl in this? As Andrea uh, Anders, yes. Yeah. And um, he tried it on with her, and she. <laughs> I mean, fair play. I mean, you got to Have give a the go guy the his due. Why yeah, don't you? Yeah. Well, he's the right height. Uh, so, yeah, 1974. Uh, we've mentioned before, Christopher Lee was the cousin of um, Ian Fleming. That island that uh, they filmed, that beautiful, beautiful island, is now just ridden with bars and uh, you know harbors for tourists. And Roger Moore went there with. Um, I remember he went one of his friends, and uh, they went to go and have a look at it, and he was so upset by what they've done to it. I bet. Well, it, it was hit by the tsunami as well, so I don't know. But, but maybe um, those bars have now gone. Might I, be the ideal I, time I, to I, go. I guess, <laughs> I, I guess that kind of uh, inspired a certain amount of reconstruction. But but yes, as it uh, as probably happened with the beach, and mm. has happened with with this particular location, and any film location, there's um, there, there's there's a number of international hotels that have got mm. bookings well into the future on the basis that they were they were in the Bond film, mm. and it it does tend to spoil locations yeah but. I must say when I, I was in um, Sri Lanka and I stood on the set of where they filmed Bridge in the River Kwai uh, ah. over there there's a little little rope that goes across and I couldn't help but do my best Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> this is not the bridge you're looking for <laughs> fortunately it didn't go down well with the hotelier <laughs> <laughs> who'd heard it before probably everybody yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else on the man with the golden gun uh, there's the jump I'm leaving it to you because I know that you get extremely excited about that scene. Well, uh, not extremely excited about the AMC Hornet that they've used for the particular scene, but it's where, in during a car chase, this car leaps a broken bridge and spins 360 degrees in mid-air doing an aerial twist and then landing back on its wheels. Mm. It was conceived of when a crew member found out that physics staff at Cornell University in New York were predicting the theoretical possibility of such a stunt um, they had one of the world's most powerful computers at the time and so they analysed the stunt and developed the ramps and so forth and it came off really really well mm. um, and it, the thing is in a Bond film it quite simply blends in really. in one take as well uh, yeah, well you'd have to really you is, wouldn't want to do that again is the man with the golden gun the introduction of Pepper J.W. Pepper. Yeah. I think it is. Not one of my favourite characters, I have to mm. say. I mean, he's, he's kind of the... He's what, something that should be in Smokey and the Bandit? Or, yes. Or um, the Cannonball Run or something. I, I, I know you've read it, and I'm currently reading at the moment, the uh, Roger Moore biography. The interesting thing that he says in that, uh, in that book about the man with the golden gun is there's a scene where the little boy has got the elephant and he goes, 20 bar. Ten bar, you pretty lady, five bar, you know, and he's trying to um, sell him this little thing, and he's in the water, and Roger Moore pushes him in. Oh. Now they was told during filming, under no circumstances, when you fall into the water, is to drink any of it, Ugh. 
uh, or look at it, you know, open your eyes because there's there's just disease and parasites. There. Roger Moore actually did open his eyes, and he fell into a part of the water which was next to the Undertaker's. Oh. Have a guess where the poorer people's bodies went. Yeah. <laughs> Hence the reason why you shouldn't open your mouth. Oh, that's, that's quite horrific, good. isn't it? So the follow-up to the man with the golden gun is the spy who loved me uh, in 1977, which has. I think the best opening to a Bond film. It, this opening has the hair on the back of my neck uh, stand up. It Ooh, is amazing. Is well. yes. <laughs> That's very <rather> good. <laughs> but the, the, the opening scene is uh, Bond making love to a lady. As he does. As he does. Has to get called away. <laughs> Sorry, darling, something has come up. <laughs> James, I need you. So does England. <laughs> and uh, and off he goes on his skis. And of course, this woman is a double agent. And then they end up following him. And it looks like Bond's in trouble. He's got his lost, you know, his gun. He's coming towards a cliff. And you see him jump up. And ah, I'd love to have been in the cinema to see that. Just see him falling. There's no music. There's just that light sound of the air. And suddenly the parachute comes up. It's the Union Jack. And it's the theme tune kicks in. Ah, <laughs> awesome. I did hear that they had people standing in the yeah. cinemas in the in the preview showings. Of- I do clap. I do clap when I see that scene. Yeah, you do clap, and then you also think this must be the world's worst secret agent. <laughs> it happens in this film where you you know he's he, he's he's just walked into this bar in New Orleans. Um, <laughs> In a safari suit and uh, pretty much ordered, pretty much ordered a spritzer. <laughs> He's parachuting about with a massive Union flag on his parachute. Yeah. And in the next film, Moonraker, <laughs> he goes through St Peter's Square in Venice on a gondola with a hovercraft attached to it. Now that this is the point. There's this one, the spy. Uh, sorry, Moonraker, the spy who loved me, and the man in the golden gun had a recurring theme of an Italian. I think it was an Italian stuntman or Italian director who. First of all, he sees something happening and he looks at his beer glass and thinks, oh, I've had too much beer, here's <laughs> some wine. In, <laughs> in the gondola bit, it's a pigeon who does a double take. A pigeon that does a double take. Now you that see, is rubbish. That, 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 that's reached the point of classic formulas of, of, of films. I mean, I mean, this is the point at which the entire genre reaches carry-on bond. Mm. It may as well be. But yeah, among, amongst there that you have to have the, as you say, the drunk looking at yeah. his bottle and going, "Ooh, what have I been drinking?" Other, the other golden law is that if a car drives through a barn, it has to come out with a confused chicken cooking on the bonnet, <laughs> yeah. um, or a bit of a fence panel on the front. No? Yeah, <laughs> but they've combined the two in this instance. They've got confused pigeon wondering what kind of grain <laughs> he's been pecking at. What's the standout thing in the Spy Who Loved Me? Well, I was going to say Stromberg's enormous great big undersea lair, but I'm going to go for our very own Richard Keel. Jaws, as uh, quoted by Roger Moore, has been one of the most sweetest, quietest man he's ever met, who is petrified of heights. He said, even being this tall makes me scared. <laughs> That's lovely. I mean, he's, he is a quiet man because he only has one line in two films. Mm, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's not, we'll talk about Moonraker. <laughs> uh, filming of The Spy Who Loved Me was uh, in Egypt, and they was accompanied by one of the uh, Egyptian diplomats who uh, insisted on seeing every single thing about the filming so that um, Egypt wasn't discredited. There's a scene in it where um, the part of the ruins falls down, and Roger Moore walks past and goes, <laughs> Egyptian builders. That was actually, he, did, he didn't say those words, he just mouthed them, and um, so that the Egyptian guy didn't know what was going on, they overdubbed it later on. Well, we know Egyptian build. If he'd said Irish builders, <laughs> oh, you might, <laughs> you might have been closer to the comedy knuckle really right. on that. But uh, but no, it, 
Egyptians aren't known for being bad builders, but there we go. No, because in the pyramids. <laughs> Tell you who are bad builders, Lotus. You know, Lotus, you know, terrific designers of cars, terrific manufacturers of mm. cars. Until, it's the esprit, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, and, until, I mean, Lotus, as we know, stands for lots of trouble, usually serious. <laughs> um, most of the Lotuses I've known, um, people have, I've generally found to go on fire without mm. the slightest provocation. Um, Good job this one can go underwater then. Exactly. <laughs> and so the Lotus Esprit, descri- disguised as a submarine, probably they thought that the daft car thing wasn't going to go any further until... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, let's, Unt- not, let's wait. Until the <laughs> until the Pierce Brosnan era. One thing about that, though, when he comes out of the water, he'd, uh, Roger Moore opens his window and takes out a fish. But he's dry. <laughs> Carrying on to Moonraker, 1979. Now, this was actually um, meant to be after For Your Eyes Only, but it was jumped forward to cash in on the success of Star Wars. <laughs> um, really, it's terrible. Do, do we have to go into Moonraker? Because um, it's, it is just rubbish, isn't it? I'm, I'm very impressed that for being a 1979 film, um, it cost $34 million to make. That's that's rather impressive, mm. actually. I think the the idea of Bond in space sounds rather hokey. Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of the master race thing um, well, with yeah, Drax. Drax. I like mm. I like his laboratory. I think where it's where they start saying he's built uh, Versailles in his back garden that gets a little odd. The yeah, it's the, it's the laser beams. I think it was very of the time. I'm not necessarily sure it's aged well, but I think the the design in it is absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, and uh, your your relative Derek Derek Meddings, Derek Meddings uh, um, was nominated. Not actually a relative. I should say that before someone sues me for. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not Just has he, an excellent name. <laughs> if if he had won the Academy Award, he was nominated for for best visual effects. I'm yeah. sure you'd have been uh, claiming that lineage and getting your hands on it. <laughs> okay, so we're we're, we're going to take the fact that Moonraker is there and the most oddest couple of Jaws <laughs> meeting up with the 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 diminutive <laughs> small blonde girl. Uh, I mean, I know opposites attract, but that's quite sweet, though. And I, I'll, I'll tell you why, because it, it comes back to Drax's master race. Plan. Yeah, that, well, yeah, because that's how that, that's the downfall of him, isn't it? Because Roger, uh, well, Bond turns around and says, "Anyone who doesn't fit in with your ideals of the master race." And yeah, I mean, I agree with stuff like that works. And but you know, you shouldn't pick faults with certain things. But you know, the parachute jump where uh, Bond is fighting with Jaws. Yep. Now, one, there's two things in that. Well, I, it always annoys me, and I thought they would have um, patched it up on the special editions where you can actually see the parachute on uh, Bond's back at yeah. one point for the jacket. Two, his jaws pretending to fly by flapping his hands because his parachute doesn't work. I don't know. Well, I mean, I've never fallen out of a plane without a parachute, to be fair. Mm. And I honestly don't think that my what my actions would be would just be to go, Ah! <laughs> Not to flap my hands in a ridiculous <laughs> attempt to fly. No, no. Well, I hope the next time you fall out of a plane without a parachute, you land on an enormous big top <laughs> for massive comedy effect. That's brilliant. Tell you what is massive comedy. What? One of the closing lines of the film. Oh, now, do you want me to say it or should you say it? <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it, is it uh, M turns around and says, uh, What is he doing? Q, meanwhile, has got his eyes on another monitor, <laughs> which is watching Bond's orbit round the Earth. And so I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> well, we all have. 
1981, For Your Eyes Only. Directed by John Glenn. That name is about from something. I don't know why. Um, opinions for, for Your Eyes Only. More uh, starting to get old at this point. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really starting to, uh, to, to crack on a little bit. He's, he's picked up at his wife's graveside. Mm. Ah. Um, but so so that's you, you mentioned that this was the this is the the dating, grave yeah which, so it says 1969 on the grave so it's already dated it by it's already you know, 12 years old 12 years old yeah um and and then he's picked which up, is feasible actually because of how old Roger Moore is but later on of course <laughs> it doesn't work but. no that's true um the helicopter that picks him up is a universal exports helicopter oh excellent which is lovely i mean mm. they make uh, make mention of Universal Exports a number of times during during the series because it is his cover yeah. story again. It's about as convincing as saying Bond, James Bond, <laughs> and, you walk into the hotel me again. Yes, <laughs> oh, it's you again, is it? Yes, uh, but I do quite like it. Um, <laughs> um, so again, f- uh, you know, um, fantastic plot. They've got the um, automatic targeting attack communicator. Mm. Um, which has gone missing, and uh, Bond is set off to re- to uh, to recover it. He says um, Julian Glover in this, doesn't it? Who was um, was he not in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade? Oh, that would make sense. Yes, yeah. that's about all I can think of of your eyes only, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> these later uh, uh, Roger Moore films are pretty bad, and the next one, Octopussy, 1983. I have to turn around and say it was my first Bond film I saw at the cinema. Ah, yeah, I think I might have been the same actually. So now, this is this is the fun bit. Um, y- this is the point at which we, we regard the films as new Bond. Yes, anything that was available on video prior mm-hmm. to seeing at cinema is old Bond, and anything after that is new Bond. However, Octopus is now halfway through the series practically. Yeah, mm. um, and so this is where we all start aging a little bit more. And Roger, bless him. Even more so. Oh, dear me. Well, he was meant to have left at this point, and Pierce Brosnan had been approached to take over uh, Bond, um, but NBC, because uh, he started, just started making Women to the Steel, um, <laughs> had turned around and suddenly, because of the success of Women to the Steel, went, nope, no, 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 we're keeping you. Yep, you can't. Um, no, so Pierce Brosnan stayed, and uh, I think he, Pierce Brosnan had only just done Long Good Friday as well, which was 19, 1980, hmm. uh, with Bob Hoskins, which was the only one thing he'd done and then got success in America. Okay. So again, we've seen um, the theme of um, Timothy Dalton was meant to have been taken over uh, for George Lazenby uh, before Roger Moore, and then we're also seeing now Timothy, uh, sorry, um, Pierce Brosnan being tipped for the role in uh, 19, 1983. Yeah, it um, takes them a while to get onto these things, doesn't it? Yeah. The, 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 there's a couple of interesting sequences. There's the, there's the sequence at the start where he has the, uh, the the little jet that comes out of the back of the horse box. Yeah, with the most convinced... Oh, no, I'm not even going to go there. Are you not convinced by that horse's... Ba- backside. No? <laughs> I'm just not convinced about the size of the plane coming out of a horse's backside. <laughs> <laughs> It was a nice scene, I thought. I mean, the, the fact that it was quite obviously all shot in Pinewood yeah. has nothing to do with it. It does does suffer... Th- now, yeah, there's a debate here as to the nastiest death that can be suffered um, in, in a Bond film. You'd, oh, right, okay. You'd be tempted to go for the um, the decompression machine that Bond hacks at mm-hmm. and the chap explodes in, that's in Timothy Dalton. The, the later Dalton yeah. film. Um, I'm going to go with the chap that has the octopus thrown into his face that sucks him to death. 
Mm, that's not a nice one that's, to go. No, that's grim. I think he inked him first. Octopus or octopussy, it you know, doesn't really matter if it's clapped onto your face and you can't I was going to say, a double entendre, I've stayed away from, I stayed away from saying pussy galore earlier on. <laughs> Octopussy galore. <laughs> Anything else about octopussy before we skip on, because <laughs> I can't wait to talk about a view to a kill. This is the one, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention that it makes a nod to Tintin, which also links up the Spielberg theme in that in the bonds in a motorised crocodile, whereas Tintin used a motorised shark. Oh, right, okay. Um, in uh, in, in uh, Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure, which is the, the film adaptation that Spielberg's filmed and is now doing seven years post-production on. Oh, really? Mm. Also starring with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. True. Yeah. Hmm. And a certain chap called Daniel Craig. Who's he? We'll find mm. out. View to a Kill. Theme tune done by Duran Duran. I like it. Apart from the end. The name's Bon. Simon Le Bon. Oh, I, I know. And Grace Jones. Now, Grace Jones is as mad as a box of frogs. So, nice and up to date, though. I mean, they're talking about Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. the power of the microchip and so forth. And, yeah. uh, of course, we're all playing with our own personal computers by that point in, <laughs> uh, in 1985. So, it was a, it was a good thing to, to conjure up. Um, yeah... Uh, and with that in mind, the the opening sequence at the Eiffel Tower, yeah. which is the same age as Roger Moore, um, <laughs> he does look old in this. He does a bit bless him. I mean, he's distracted from his lunch in the Eiffel Tower, and then you've got Grace Jones trying to attack you with a fishing, pole. <laughs> <laughs> and then she jumps off. Mm, fantastic uh, parachute jump. Yeah, uh, in that as well. And then a lovely scene in which uh, Bond goes a bit mental in a Renault. Oh yeah, which is smashed to bits, and then the big one of the biggest product placement uh, sequences where he goes through a Perrier van. Yeah, and you know that's <laughs> not actually mentioned um, in the end credits because obviously you mention uh, product placement in the credits because it's like Perrier is not mentioned, <laughs> which is weird because in how much there is actually smashed to bits in that. There's uh, an awful lot. Maybe it just came across the set by accident. <laughs> this is a, another Bond film which actually dates it with um, the wonderful Christopher Walken oh. Christopher Walken who uh, plays Zorin in this who signs a cheque and you see the year on it so he actually dates it there worst scene in this in which uh, something where me and my uh, Waffle On co-host Cal always laugh about is there's a scene where Bond is driving the car he's already in half at this point and then goes under another lorry so he cuts the top off and the stuntman pops his head up and he's so clearly not Roger Moore <laughs> you think what is going on he's the furthest thing from Roger Moore you could possibly be <laughs> yeah. it's Grace Jones hey <laughs> so <laughs> we now go into the wonderful era only did two films but in my mind he is one of the best Bonds yes we're talking about Timothy Dalton 007 my god what's Bond doing I think he's attempting re-entry sir Okay, Dalton's first uh, foray as Bond is in The Living Daylights, and um, I love this film. Now, I'll admit this is this is one I haven't seen for quite a while. Mm-hmm. It's so, got Marianne Diabo in it. Yeah, and it, I, I think that's her bottom. It's a, it's a glorious poster. <laughs> it is a glorious poster, mm, isn't it? Nice. It's a really good film, this is. I mean, the, the, the whole thing about um, Timothy Dalton is he's going back to almost like... Um, Fleming's novelisation he's a hard bond um, he's very gritty not so much one liners but you, again it's almost going back to what we were talking about Connery earlier on where the fact that you can imagine him smacking you in the face it's going to hurt with Roger Moore really you didn't really get that 
feeling that if he punched you, it's going to hurt. Yes, he's, he's a classical actor. The, the Roger Moore, David Niven kind of style mm. role has gone. It's that, yeah, that, that that gentle charm has has gone, and and so you've got the raw edge of um, of Bond coming back in. Interestingly, I remember at the time they were saying, well. You know, he's he's sleeping with fewer people, or he's doing a lot less womanising, and I think this is down to the kind of the socially responsible um, period we hit, we hit in the mid eighties. Yeah, this was this is the period where HIV had, had uh, hit its height of uh, recognition more than anything else like that, and so safe sex was being promoted. Uh, now, I'm not being funny, but you don't want safe sex when it comes to Bond. You want a lot of bed, bed action and a lot of killing. Exactly, exactly. He's 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 as rife as a sailor by this point. And anyway, <laughs> pop, popping on a Johnny isn't going to help him it's, at this stage. Could you, could you imagine that scene? It's just not going to work, is it? I think Q would Bond probably have come up with something <laughs> for him. <laughs> what, what's think... this Q? He's made of what? Guaranteed to sparkle. Actually, he'd probably have them sewn into his belt like he did the silver sovereign, <laughs> gold sovereigns. <laughs> Brilliant. In the earlier films, he's got a belt entirely constructed of condoms. <laughs> you think that's where Batman went wrong? I, I, I think, yeah, as opposed to wearing one. <laughs> Trying to get his bat, bat yeah. fling. And he only had two nipples. Ooh. Uh, no, um, yeah, The Living Daylights, 1987, Timothy Dalton, and that was followed up by Licence to Kill. Unfortunately, Licence to Kill was really uh, not marketed well in America. Uh, I think one of the things that actually put the, the killer on this film was the um, public outcry where the original title for License to Kill was Licensed Revoked and the uh, marketing people turned around and says we can't use Revoked because people in uh, other countries <laughs> won't understand what the word Revoked means which is really insulting I think so they just put License to Kill and it's an excellent film it is dark, it's gritty it's got a very young Benito del Toro in it, who gets uh, <laughs> who gets um, killed via a uh, rock grinder, and it That's also has Bond killing Sanchez in an incredibly violent way. Um, it's a violent film. Felix Leiter's wife gets murdered. Uh, Leiter gets seriously injured in it. Um, so he's after he's, he actually kills because they've you know they've hurt his friends. Uh, it's an it's an awesome film, and and I suggest anyone goes back. If you love Casino Royale, go back and watch License to Kill. Mm. Uh, now Timothy Dalton only did two films, which is which is again I say such a shame. It is a shame. Um, Something that united those two films is they were both released as graphic novels. Oh really? Seriously? Now what what do you think the other thing was uh, with License to Kill's failure? What other films were out at that time? Bear in mind this is nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. Um, it was a summer release. Now since then, um, Bond films have been released in autumn or winter, which mm. is when you get more people going. Normally going to a nice warm summer. Yeah, yeah it's, around that, it's around that time. Summer 1989 was a bad time to be putting out a film um, because you had, well, let's start with Ghostbusters 2. That's Not gonna, the greatest of films, especially with the Statue of Liberty walking down the street. That's going to drag in a few crowds, though, isn't it? it indeed, based on yeah. the first one. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Not a bad film. Uh, some film called Star Trek. <laughs> we love Star Trek. So I've heard. <laughs> um, the Abyss. You know I'm not a great fan. Oh, I do love that I film. I know you are, I don't like it. Lethal Weapon 2. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean Connery gets in the way with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Awesome. Um, and then also released in summer 89 was Batman. Awesome. So, 
I mean, still say Jack Nicholson was better Joker. Why would anybody <laughs> else bother doing anything in Summer '89? I mean, if if there's a cinema season where you don't want a lot of those on your DVD shelf, mm. um, that that's just an amazing time to do it. So I'm sure in fact, that every single to one it. of those films, apart from Honey I Shot the Kids in the Abyss, uh, now behind you, that's <laughs> good pedigree. We should go back to 1989. Oh, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be allowed to drink this delicious. Martini. Martini that we're drinking. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Timothy Dalton bows out. It looks like we got away with it. My cello. It's at the conservatoire. Don't worry, I'll get you another in Vienna. No, we must go back for it. We have about ten minutes, if we're lucky, before they discover what's happened. I must get my cello. No way. They're looking for a foreign car. A man and a woman. And a cello. And suddenly we have a gap of six years, and we hit with a new bond, a and new an director, enormous, an enormous legal bill. And an enormous, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should point out as well, of course, that um, from the moment of the Golden Gun, it was uh, Cubby Broccoli was running the whole um, thing on his own at this point, um, along with Barbara Broccoli and Ian G. Wilson. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Cubby um, died. After GoldenEye was finished, um, he'd saw the first print of it, but never actually got to see the success um, that came through it. Now, GoldenEye brought us Pierce Brosnan. In my mind, and this is, of course, my only opinion, his only good Bond film. Now, I'm going to claim, mm. um, at least, that Twine, right, which is short of the world is not enough, <laughs> as well as a type of garden string... Mm. Um, was was also rather good. Okay, um, well, well, we'll come to that in a minute. We will. I can pick you on it when mm-hmm. we get to it. But Goldeneye, probably the second best opening uh, bun, um, scene with the jump. Well, there's the, the, there's a couple of things about the the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Um, first one being the car chase. Yeah. The slightly unrealistic car chase between the Aston Martin DB5 and the Ferrari F355. Mm. Um, and he's supposed to be the same Aston Martin that's <laughs> in um, uh, the Connery one, but there's a slight difference in the number plate by two digits. Mm. Can't give the exact things, that's just something I know off the top of my brain. Fair enough. Oh dear. <laughs> So it was a great race. It really looked very good. If you take away the, if you suspend your disbelief as you mm. should for these films, then it was a terrific um, opening scene. And then the bungee jump, which was at the um, uh, Ver- Verzasca Dam Ooh. in Ticino in Switzerland, um, which was also pretty darn spectacular. At that really, point. I mean, really impressive. That is great stunt work going on there and also you get to see another, another double O agent with double O six played by Sean Bean Seen Bean yeah or Sean has been Sean Bourne uh, otherwise known as uh, Bobby Mayer in Lord of the Rings um, who played Alex Trevelyan yes so you actually get to see him interacting with another agent and doing a spot of teamwork mm. uh, great film Goldeneye but apart from maybe the driving the tank through um, is it St Petersburg um, I believe it's supposed to be St. Petersburg, I believe. It's, I don't it mind that. It's just a bit where he drives a tank and the statue's on top of it as it's driving along. <laughs> That's a little odd. Can actually. I just mention Famke Janssen? Otherwise known as uh, also been in the X-Men films. If you really must. There's something quite hot about her. There is a bit. She does have this kind of um, look about her. Mm. Mm. Just her name. <laughs> On a top. If you're gonna go, <laughs> I can think of worse ways. You see, it's, it, it, I agree. It, it 
it's all there. Bond is back. The the girls are looking pretty good. Mm-hmm. We've got Alan Cumming. Can I just point out as well? The new M. Ah, yes. Judy, Judy Dench. Dench. Judy Dench. Who, to be fair, I, I mean, she's took on that role and, and she's still in her name at the moment. Just that woman never ages. She, she, she does very well and she's played authority figures... Um, for an awful lot of time in, do, in mm. her career, reflects the fact that um, MI6, I think MI6, was uh, w- was headed by um, Dame Stella Remington at the time. Mm. So it was a yeah, the SAS. Yeah, so yeah, not anymore though. Not anymore. <laughs> um, so uh, Brosnan came back with Tana- uh, Tomorrow Never Dies from 1997. Yeah, what makes a an almost perfect Bond villain is a terrific actor, and Jonathan Price. Um, was really well placed to to play a fantastic villain. Unfortunately, he really cartoons it up a bit. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh uh, is is in this because the the film is is set uh, largely in Asia. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, um, who strangely has gone on to become the wife of Jean Tot. Right. Who um who was the Frenchman who was in charge of Ferrari in Formula One? Ah, um, during the point at which Michael Schumacher was winning everything. And is now in the running to be doing Max Mosley's job. Oh, right. Oh, okay. So he, as a little tiny Frenchman who looks a bit like Mr. Toad, has managed to bang himself a Bond girl out of nowhere. Ah, Terry Hatch is in this as well, otherwise known as Lois Lane from um, Lois and Clark TV series. It was yeah. at the height of her fame at that point, and I think he's now in Desperate Housewives or something. Oh, she's certainly desperate. Mm. I mean, in Lois and Clark, she was attractive. Yeah, and she was good in this as well. I mean, she slaps Pierce Brosnan or something rotten in this film. Well, that's something I wanted to mention, actually. Mm. I I wasn't able, um, not without exploring a number of very specialist websites, <laughs> to find out exactly how many women Bond has hit. Because he has, hasn't he? He's hit um, a lot of women. Connery and more. Yep. And Dalton, I think. But as I say, if you Google it, you're in for a... Well, you're in for a long afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Following Tomorrow Never Dies is The World Is Not Enough in 1999. Is this the one with Robert Carlyle? It is. Now, that's one of the reasons I think this is an excellent film. And Sophie Marceau. Sophie Marceau is excellent and, yeah. is, and is quite evil in it and uh, starts trying to grop the guy. Robert Carlyle is an excellent villain because he's an excellent actor anyway. Yeah. And then uh, a mention must go to Denise Richards. Yeah. <laughs> There's a quote. There is. There is a quote. There is a quote with Denise Richards, which is why I remember the film, which is where she says, we're going to have to get out of here or someone's going to have my ass. Yes. <laughs> and Bond turns and says, first things first. <laughs> and this is also one, because she plays uh, Dr. Christmas Jones, isn't it? And doesn't he turn around and say... And I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You can't help but do it in the Roger Moore voice, though. Well, yes, it's it, <laughs> there is that charm when 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 Brosnan's with the ladies, he has to put on the the Roger Moore voice. It's it's the law, I think. Yeah, it's a 1999 uh, film, so you know it's it, it, it's rocking on at this point. It, it spawned a rather popular video game. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of one of the best Bond video games, and uh, but yeah, even so, you don't rate it. No, I just think I, the trouble is, I think Pierce Brosnan was starting to look old as well at this point, which hmm. is which is strange because he looks great in Goldeneye, and then suddenly he looks as if, you know, he's he's had a, a, a row with a washing machine. He just looks like he's been tumble dried for for a few days, and uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I just think the stories are, are just not up to scratch at all. I mean, Die Another Day oh, is just die. I mean, it's awful, dross, rubbish, 
2002 and the, the, the most sad thing about it is the fact the last film to star Desmond Llewellyn and he does say a pointed thing and he says when he says goodbye because uh, I think John Cleese takes over at that point mm. and, um, and and poor old Desmond Llewellyn dies in a car um, a car accident um, it was in, in between filming and the release of the film I yeah, understand yeah. and his last words in the film were always have an escape plan Oh, you see, I mean, but she didn't. Yeah, and he would have if he were. And, and, and why is Die Another Day terrible? Die Another Day, isn't it? Well, th- th- there's a terrific thing about Die Another Day, and there's a bad thing about Die Another Day. Mm. There's a couple of terrific things about Die Another Day, and they are Halle Berry. Yeah, awesome. Ah, uh, awesome. Now, this is the point where you start crossing the line a little bit and referencing earlier Bond films but which is a 20th Bond film yeah so Halle Berry coming out of the sea looking a little bit like Ursula Andress looks good does look very good Mm -hmm. that's sadly uh, put to the test though when we have to believe in the Aston Martin vanish Mm. Um, which and, and granted the technology does Fundamentally, exist to have a car that turns invisible, but not to that extent. It's, it's not when they say it's all to do with mirrors. <laughs> That's the excuse. Cameras projecting Q, the background. Yeah, Q turns around and says, in, in, I must point out the most awesome underground uh, tube station. Yeah. Um, uh, where he just turns around and goes, Oh, yes, it's because we've got a lot of mirrors around it. I'm thinking, No. Mm. That's because. And it's, isn't this the film as well where it also has the really bad um, surfing bit? Where the back projection is just atrocious. Oh yes, that's a bit grim as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the bit where we're asked to believe that a car can be invisible—not going to happen. No. Did make me go to the ice hotel though. Yeah, that's true. That was good, wasn't it? That was that was good. So that bit. At Would least... you recommend it? Although I knew them because it's presumably melted by now. Well, if you hold on a minute, that was the Eden project that it was filmed at, not that there. <laughs> 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 Which is in Cornwall. Oh yes, I've I've, I've been to both. Yeah. I've, I've filmed a sequence of the Inn Project. And which, did, was, which was and the most the bond for, which bond was the most expensive. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that'll be the ice hotel. <laughs> so we then come on to um, the last two films of the Bond franchise, which is bringing in the blonde-haired Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. Whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, W7. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I've no compunction about sending you to your death. But I won't do it on a whim even with your cavalier attitude towards life. Now, I remember going to see a film called Layer Cake uh, at the cinema, and I came out of that film and said, this man would play a brilliant Bond. It's a good film in itself. Yeah. Um, really, really nice-looking film. Guy Ritchie? Uh, no, uh, Matthew Vaughan. He's uh, Guy Ritchie's old producer. Ah, um, yes. And I just remember thinking, he, he, you know, he dresses up well. I mean, I've always been a big fan of Daniel Craig, anyway, from our friends from the north. Mm. Um, and as soon as I heard he'd got the the role, I just thought, this is it. This is brilliant. He's going to make one of the best Bonds. And I think, to be fair, after seeing well, he's he's close to tipping tipping Connery. I think um, to those people who actually started a website about trying to get him out of the role. You really should just get a life, man. <laughs> it really should. <laughs> if it had turned out to be a, a bit of a turkey, they'd have had the last laugh, I think. But yeah. uh, uh, 
as it turns out, yeah, they, they did need to reinvent Bond. They did need to, yeah, to an extent, go back to the roots, take some of the carry-on elements mm. out of it, take some of the the rely the over reliance on CGI out of it. A yeah, definitely. Bit. Um, and and put an, an actor in who's telling a story. An awesome opening as well. Uh, the fight scene in the uh, the restroom is brilliant because I I have actually heard someone's head get cracked off. A, uh, a sink <laughs> I know what that sounds like and they got it down to a T in fact it was on uh, our um, terrestrial um, TV station two days ago I think was it and they cut a lot of that out I'm, I'm not surprised because that fight really hurts yeah but that's what it's meant to be and that's what I think is really awesome about Casino Royale is when, when Bond gets hit you see the blood come out of him, you see him get bruised, you see his nose get broken, and mm. when he has the torture scene in the chair, which I honestly thought they would have cut out of the book, uh, from the book, but they kept it in, mm. he's, he's for, for a bloke, cringing. It's pretty eye-watering stuff. Yeah. And, but, but again, it's, it's, it's faithful to the novel, mm-hmm. it, 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 it tells it how it is. The, the film looks absolutely amazing. The photography has, has improved well well over the the Brosnan mm. films I would have said and um, free running in it as well which is also awesome to see that's great I mean that there's as you say there's uh, there's an interesting difference to be drawn here there's the there's the point where there's the free running sequence mm-hmm. and the camera is basically following yeah uh, following the action but then again you've got that um, fight sequence you identified before where it's seen from a from a long way mm, away mm. where you've got these people converging on Bond and so you can see the peril yeah, about yeah. to happen um, you know, some people see the, the the close camera shoot as a bit of dumbing down mm. because it's almost like allowing the audience to be Bond it's, it's, I think it's a little bit like the video game scenario I think mm, um, mm. there is a problem with that and I think with uh, the Bourne films that have come about I know people have compared the two things together uh, I think that's dated now really having a camera that close and too wibbly wobbly it's, it doesn't work anymore because you just want to watch what's going on you do yeah yeah. you don't want to be confused no um, so much and yeah, you, you can do a fight scene and direct it properly and have it um, have it just as impactful really mm. without you know, having to plonk the audience in the centre of the action you can you know, maintain the attention of the audience by Good. any other means I think we're going to have to mention for the ladies out there for all the uh, ladies of Treks in Sci-Fi um, the scene in which Daniel Craig comes out of the sea he does you've got to take your hat off he does a Halle Berry well you've got to take your hat off and put it over that really uh, <laughs> to be fair <laughs> put us uh, all to shame <laughs> yep yep he had gone and bloody well worked out accidental he? shot as well which is even more annoying yeah he was just doing that when he didn't know he was being filmed I yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, he did look good. He was in good shape. He looked terrific in a suit, and I've bought a couple of suits based on the look. Oh, the final, sh- the final shot in Casino Royale. I love that suit. In fact, if you remember, when I, uh, I was just before I got married, mm. I was saying to you, I said, I really want to have my suit, my <laughs> wedding suit, this suit. It's got to be it. Quite right, too. Facts for Casino Royale. The, the car in it was... Pretty darn imp- impressive, really. Back to the Aston Martin. We've gone away from using BMWs. I hated BMW. In fact, I hate BMWs now. There, there was no point in using it. It was pure product placement at this point. But mm. we're, we're back to the Aston Martins now, which is a James Bond film tradition. And we're back to Aston Martin's DBS. And you know, it's not for nothing that Aston Martin is uh, the coolest brand in Britain officially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's right there. But they, uh, they did the stunt... Where Bond was chasing the Shifa and found Vesper lying in the road. Yeah. 
swerved uh, the car tipped over that was an air cannon stunt which was filmed at Millbrook in the UK and the car was doing over 70 miles an hour and the car rotated seven times awesome and it was all captured by all the cameras at the time new world record brilliant. for the number of rolls in a uh, in a film car sequence and it looks brilliant on the on, uh, screen as well brilliant just brilliant driving well, I mean, the whole thing about it is I mean, it's well planned out, and it's just great that a car like that can survive, you know, can keep together over seven rolls. Uh, and that's how you do a crash. So we follow up with um, Casino Art with uh, Quantum of Cra- Quantum of Solace. Well, sorry, I was I I was so looking forward to this film. Craig is brilliant in it, but they lose the realism in it. They they suddenly have gone from Casino Royale, where as a lot of pointed out earlier on, where he's getting hit and you see him getting hurt, to Quantum of Solace, where yeah he gets punched in it, but you don't see any bruises, you don't see it. And I'm thinking, well, what what has happened to it? I think honestly they brought this film out too quick. There there was a, a big rush to follow up. Um, on Casino Royale and I know that Quantum of Solace does follow along with this whole secret organisation we know on, we know not who they are mm. it's this, this whole quantum idea and yeah, the the, uh, the conspiracy boards are hard at work saying oh it's Spectre it's Spectre or, it's or someone, yeah someone I, I think that it, it was going to be a difficult a difficult second film really. yeah, different, yeah. Um, it, it was always going to be in that shape I think the film views a lot better if you watch Casino Royale and then just stay in your seat and watch Quantum of Solace because mm. if you view them as as a single work it works a lot better yeah. and I think that the film coming through uh, will will actually tie up a few of these loose ends but there's a lot of double crossing there's a lot of um, flipping flipping one way flipping the other mm. um, is Mathis dead isn't he and so forth yeah and it's also got a really bad uh, theme tune in it yeah well I mean you know, if you're asked to write the theme tune for Quantum of Solace what on earth you know it's, it's not the f- easiest thing to rhyme with is it <laughs> not really no how did you die your contact not well Okay, well, that's the uh, list of uh, going through all the Bond films there. Uh, we've got a couple of comments. Well, actually, we've got two comments that uh, I'm going to read out now. The first one is an email that we got through, and that was sent in by Crystal. Hello, Crystal. Because hi, Meds, and presumably she means you as well. Hello, Peter. Uh, hello, <laughs> Bond. Hello to you, Crystal. <laughs> uh, Bond, what can you say about this larger-than-life character? The first Bond film I ever saw and really stuck in my mind was The Spy Who Loved Me. Awesome. Well awesome. Can you stuff. act out? Can you, Crystal, act out the opening sequence for us? Ooh. Stick it on YouTube, we'll all have it. <laughs> hey. uh, after that, it was a tradition. When a new Bond movie went out, I would spend the closest Saturday afternoon going to see it. I can't say I have a favourite actor per se, just because they were things I liked and disliked about each one of them. Although, if I had to lean towards one, I would say Connery. He was the first. Uh, he set the bar and from there everyone else would create the Bond character in their own way frankly if the other predecessors had tried to duplicate any of the previous ones in my opinion it would have probably doomed the franchise a long time ago as for my favourite film of the series it has to be the first which caught my attention The Spy Who Loved Me hands down and my last go at something in the signature Bond songs there's something exciting about waiting to hear those first few strings of the original music Created just for the movies. In my opinion, it just enhances what Bond is all about. Mystery and intrigue, and let's be honest, ending up with the girl. Thanks, Crystal. Well, thanks, Crystal. That is an awesome email. And uh, pretty dead on there with Spy, uh, Spy I Love Me. Absolutely, Crystal. Well called there. There's a, there's a couple of facts which we can bring in to back up your assertions there. There's 
two Bond films, which have ended with the central Bond girl deceased um, on the Majesty's Secret Service and Casino Royale. Quantum of Solace is the odd one out, mm-hmm. as Mendes has already pointed out. In all of the other films, Bond is either kissing his leading lady, making love to his leading lady, or implying <laughs> that he will shortly <laughs> do so. Uh, our second uh, comment that we're going to play, it's actually an audio comment, and it is from Mike... And uh, he sent me this MP3 earlier on today. Here is Mike. Hey, mates. Mike from London. Just stealing a conference room at work for a few minutes at lunchtime. Hopefully there's a bit of uh, peace and quiet to try and put down my few thoughts on, on James Bond for your upcoming treks in sci-fi. First thing to say about Bond, I guess, is that it is so long-lived. I mean, they've been running for the entirety of my life, I feel. Certainly. Well, I've been running since the 60s, and the, the films have been running for at least that long, as far as I know. I can't say I'm that well-versed in them, to be honest. I've watched a whole lot of them. You see at least one every Christmas, and I've seen a fair few in the cinema. But to a degree, I think I go and watch them because it's the British thing to do, watch MI6 going and doing their stuff and probably confounding a few Americans on the way, which is always fun. Are you Obviously, growing up was a lot more in the Roger Moore era than anywhere else because he did it for such a a blooming long time Um, probably too long actually by the time he was almost felt like he was running around on a Zimmer frame trying to uh, punch out the bad guys and that was was some of my problem stems from that I think because the more years certainly got a little bit too played a little bit too much on on the humour rather than the the story but rather rather than the action you know I'm I'm an action film type of guy yeah, I like humour as well, but, but to try and mix the two in the way that they did never really worked for me. So when Roger Moore retired from the role, and we then started to get, well, ending in Pierce Brosnan particularly, a re-emphasis on the action. Some of the humour was still there, but, you know, they put the balance put the balance back right again. And those latter ones I enjoyed. They had a different feel to them. I mean... I'm into the post-Broccoli era now, and you're dealing with different people behind the camera as well as in front, and some of the feeling was lost, but I I think they still carried themselves fairly well. And then you get into the Daniel Craig era, which, again, has has moved completely away from the humour, as far as I can tell. We're now very much into an action-oriented, action-only film, and you can see some of that Casino Royale was on the other night, and I, I think one of the things they did with that film was very much depicted some of the physical effort that that goes into the physical combative stuff that Bond picks up. Never really come across, I think, with any of the other films. It's always been romanticised to a degree, you know, playing a lot more on the technology and the cars and, um, you know, step aside from a violent encounter and uh, make a quick rooted remark. Having said that with, with Daniel Craig, and, you know, I quite like Casino Royale. I think it, it worked quite well. It was, I say, it was on the other night and we watched it again and it sort of refreshed my memory a little bit as to what it was. Having said I like that, I have a real problem with the way Quantum of Solace went together. Now, we never saw that in cinema. In fact, I only saw it last week. And I saw it in last week in isolation before Casino Royale was repeated. So going into that film, I had a hazy memory of of its predecessor that I'd, I'd seen a year or two before. And really that wasn't enough to carry the story. I was completely lost throughout all of it. The sequences went together very well. The acting was good, all the rest of it. The story wasn't there. I couldn't follow it didn't really know what was happening. Okay, I pieced it together at the end, but watching a film like that and then turning round to my wife and having to try and work out between us exactly what it was about and why and, and how and you know, it's just not enjoyable to be blunt. Now, watching Casino Royale the night afterwards, 
possibly then going into Quantum of Solace, as I mean, as other people have said, you know, maybe that would have equipped me to uh, cope with it even enough, but it just felt to me like a lot of action sequences taped together. Now, that's the way cinema seems to be going to a degree. I mean, you could argue that for the new Star Trek film. It's primarily sitting on the action, bang, 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 pushing the scenes out, not a lot of, of stuff in between, but it's okay for a while. I, I think Quantum of Solace suffered from it. So I'm a little bit... I won't say I'm worried because I've never been that wedded to the franchise. I've enjoyed it. But I'm not sure how much of my interest Bond is going to retain at the moment if they carry on in that vein. Certainly lost a little bit too much of the the storytelling in recent years for me. Anyway, I know I'm rambling now and I'm sure somebody's going to want this room back. So I'll stop at that point and uh, say I look forward to hearing this whenever it gets out. Sure, you're going to have a good time talking about all those films. I'm certainly going to enjoy listening to it, and for the most part, remembering them fondly. I'll chat to you again soon. Cheers. Awesome there, Mike. Thanks very much. Um, Thank you, Mike. Another fan of Quantum now. (laughs) Look, everybody calm down. (laughs) It is all fine. Have another look at Quantum of Solace, because I have to say that I went to the cinema, I think it was twice, to yeah. go, to uh, to watch Casino Royale and uh, it, yeah I've seen it several times since on DVD and it rewards you every time Quantum of Solace becomes clearer every time okay uh, a bit more facts there Pete before we go on to uh, round up ah oh, well we 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 can't we can't talk about this without mentioning a few of the Bond girls' names <laughs> I mean there are some really classy ones there's there's Ves- Vesperlind who yep. who of course um gave her name to the delicious cocktail which we'll talk about in a moment mm. there's well there's Pussy Galore we've mentioned we've mentioned Pussy there's Mary Goodnight from the Man of the Golden Gun Honey Rider we've mentioned Plenty O'Toole Zinnia on a top and of, of course there's Dr Goodhead classic quote it has to be said <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking for Doctor Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that. that that's, that's my favourite Roger Moore line, and I'd, I'd have to say, in, in much the same way as Peter Davison is our Doctor. Doctor Roger Moore is Roger Moore is our uh, is, is our 007. I would have to say. Now we uh, just briefly mentioned there the dry martini. Now me and you are, are, are obviously big fans of Bond. We watch Bond together, and we have of occasion enjoyed a nice dry martini together. Yes. Um, in the film, and that's just something constantly from Casino Royale, the book. The drink is made of. Get your pens and papers together, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Three measures of Gordon's, which is gin. Uh, one of vodka, half a measure of quinolillet, shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large slice of lemon peel. Now, Gordon's gin is actually slightly different nowadays than what it actually used to be, so I recommend you get some Tanqueray gin, substitute that for that. You can still buy quinolillet, um, because I bought it and it cost the... <laughs> Got the bum. <laughs> it, it, it's not cheap, but it's a it's a lovely taste. It is lovely taste, and uh, but be warned, it is incredibly, incredibly strong. Now, before we uh, we wrap up, um, I just want to mention the people who have played the uh, other main characters in Bond. Uh, people who have played M have been Bernard Lee, Robert Brown, and Judy Dench. Uh, people who played Miss Moneypenny was, of course, the wonderful Lois Maxwell. Ah. <clears throat> Sorry, Caroline Bliss, who did the Dalton years, and Samantha Bond, who was the Brosnan ones. And Q. Uh, now, Q was actually played by Peter Burton in Doctor No, the wonderful Desmond Llewellyn from 1963 to 1999, and then John Cleese in, uh, from 1999 to 2000. 
two. Um, the only other person was Felix Leiter. Uh, Jack Lord played him originally, um, but Jeffrey Wright has taken on uh, Felix Leiter both in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. The only other actor to play Felix Leiter twice was David Hedison from Live and Let Die, and of course, Licence to Kill. I'd like to thank my co-host today, Peter Coleman. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm off to attempt re-entry. <laughs> Sad for 